episode eight of our Catholic Campus Ministry Summer School podcast, where we're looking at the different heresies that the church has had to deal with throughout her history. My name is Deacon Matt Newsom, and I am the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University. And we are right now in the middle of looking at some of the great heresies of the Middle Ages. Last week, we looked at the Cathars, which were kind of a uh, a strange, spooky uh, group that that really can't even be understood properly speaking as Christians. They were not monotheists. They believed in two different gods. Um, and if you just a brief summation, uh, just to give you a brief summary of of last week, you know they understood the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament to be two distinct entities. The Old Testament God was evil. He was a God associated with physical creation. And the New Testament God is good and is a God associated with spiritual creation. So to them, to their understanding, Jesus was not actually uh, 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 a physical being. Uh, God did not become incarnate and put on flesh uh, that's what that word incarnate means. Uh, Jesus was just a spiritual apparition uh, that that came to to reveal certain truths. So uh, their their theology was vastly different than Christian theology, and that led them to all kinds of strange practices. Um, that kind of spawned from their belief in the evilness of physical creation. So they um, uh, they practiced mandatory celibacy. They practiced a, a very strict vegan diet. Uh, they lived lives of extreme asceticism and poverty. Um, and uh, you know, and we mentioned last week that yes, in the Catholic Church, we have those who live celibate lives and those who practice very uh, you know extreme uh, ascetic lives and and harsh penances and uh, and those who embrace poverty. Um, but we do th- these things in the Catholic Church um, as a form of sacrifice and penance by denying ourselves something that we know to be good. Um, whereas the Cathars would do these things because they thought that. Um, that everything physical and material was was evil. Um, the Cathars um, divided themselves into two groups, the perfects, who actually lived this extreme kind of uh, ascetic lifestyle, and the hearers, who would learn from the perfects and aspire to be a perfect, but usually they would wait until you know close to their deathbed to actually take the vows and become a perfect, um, because otherwise they they thought that they wouldn't be able to uh, to live that life. Um, and in fact, a perfect who um, the hearers thought um, was about to to slide away um, and depart from the the strict observance required of that lifestyle um, would be ritually smothered. Um, as a, a mercy killing, they viewed that as a merciful thing, uh, something that they would do out of love to save that person's soul by freeing their their soul from their evil bodies before they could fall from grace, as it were. Um, and so the Cathars were were very influential in, uh, in southern France and the Albigensian uh, region and in northern Italy, um, and they uh, they were. Um, uh, responded against by uh, by military means in terms of the Albigensian Crusade, which were very bloody wars that uh, rocked um, Western Europe in the 13th century, but also by the preaching mission of the newly established Dominican Order, or its official name, the Order of Preachers, that was started by St. Dominic, whom we talked about last week. So that's, that's the Cathars, and I give that little recount because this week we're talking about the Waldensians, 
Um, I mentioned at the end of the last episode, we were going to ask the question, where's Waldo? Well, Waldo is in um, 12th century France, right in the middle of this Cathar hotbed. And um, the, the Waldensian movement, in a lot of ways, kind of mirrors some of what we learned last week about the Cathars, but in other ways is very, very different. Um, so while all this is going on, the same time and in the same region of Europe as the Cathar heresy, there's a man named Waldo who lives in Lyon in southern France. He's a merchant. Um, he's apparently a very wealthy and successful merchant. Uh, but he's also interested in religion, which is not hard to understand, right? Because of all of the, the turmoil and the religious controversy that, that's going on. He was not an educated man. He could not read in Latin, which... Um, you know, we might wonder about that now because there's lots of educated people that can't read Latin. Um, but back then in the 12th century, Latin was the language of education. If you had any kind of schooling whatsoever, one of the first things that they would teach you is how to read and write in Latin uh, because that was that was the scholarly language. That was the language of scholarship. Um, uh, and so not being able to read Latin really put limits on uh, on Waldo's um uh, knowledge and his um, um, uh, the exposure that he had to uh, to the scriptures and to other scholarly ideas. So he asked for um, uh, for a vernacular translation of the Gospels from a couple of priests, uh, and they were able to provide that to him. There were vernacular translations of scriptures even at this early date. Um, there have always been vernacular translations of scriptures. It just hasn't been a very common thing. Um, I think a lot of times we might run up against this idea that you know the Catholic Church didn't allow vernacular translations of the Bible, um, uh, that it had to only be in Latin. And uh, it was the Protestant Reformation that kind of brought about you know the, the vernacular translations. Um, and certainly after the Protestant Reformation, vernacular translations of the scriptures became much more common. Um, and that was partly due to the Protestant... Um, uh, um, insistence on the primacy of scriptures, in which they would want the scriptures to be available to, to every person. But um, but really, it had more to do with the invention of the printing press. I mean, it was just more feasible to get translations of, of the scriptures, or any other book for that matter, into the hands of the people once the printing press became, um, uh, became available. Um, but in the 12th century, the printing press was still centuries down the road. And so any book, whether it's in Latin or in the vernacular, had to be hand copied and was therefore a very expensive uh, and very rare item. Um, but Waldo could apparently read, um, at least in the vernacular, as, as a merchant. It makes sense that he would have to be at least a little bit um, um, uh, literate, uh, but he hadn't received any kind of formal education, so he couldn't read Latin. Um, but he received copies of the Gospels in the vernacular, and eventually he would also receive copies of um, a few Old Testament books um, and some patristic writings in the vernacular, too. And so he's kind of made his own little study of, of religion. But then sometime around the year 1176, he experienced a conversion um, of sorts, um, a, a real defining moment. He heard a wandering minstrel, an itinerant musician who had come to town, and he sang a song about the life of St. Alexius. Now, St. Alexius, um, he's not a real well-known saint. You may have never heard of him. Um, according to legend, he was a wealthy Roman citizen um, who, on the night of his marriage, left Rome, fled to Edessa, 
and there lived a life of poverty for 17 years. After 17 years, he came back to Rome and lived under the stairs of his father's palace for another 17 years as a beggar. And he didn't tell his father, and he didn't tell his wife, who also lived there, who he was. And so for 17 years, he lived there as a beggar. And it was only after his death that a note was found with his body that gave his true identity. And after that, he began to be revered as a, as a saint. So this, this happened all back in the, the early 5th century AD. So Waldo heard this song about the life of St. Alexius, praising his poverty, and he was impressed by that, by that story and inspired by it. Um, he also encountered a verse in Matthew's Gospel. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, where Jesus says, If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. And Waldo took those words to heart. And so that kind of combined with, you know, this inspiration of the story of St. Alexius, um, he decided to do exactly that, to go and sell what he has and give to the poor. And so he went home, he sold all of his possessions, um, and, and he gave the, uh, the proceeds to, to the poor. And he went off to establish uh, a life of itinerant preaching uh, and begging. Now, the only caveat to that is Waldo had a wife and two daughters. So he left enough money with his wife to make sure that she was cared for, that she could support herself, and he put his two daughters into a convent before he went off to start his life of itinerant preaching. So you may notice some similarities in, in Waldo's kind of origin story here uh, to the life of St. Francis uh, that you're probably much more familiar with. St. Francis lived a little bit after Waldo, but almost was a contemporary. St. Francis was born in the year 1181, um, and so he came a few decades after, after Waldo. But like Waldo, Francis came from a wealthy merchant family. He had a lot of wealth. Like, um, like Waldo, Francis had a moment of, of conversion. Um, it wasn't Matthew 19.21 um, in, in Francis's case. It was a different part of, of Matthew's gospel. Um, I think it was the, uh, in, in the 10th chapter of Matthew um, where Jesus sends out the, uh, the disciples and, uh, to, to go ahead of him to prepare the way for the reception of the gospel and tells them that they are not to, um, uh, not to travel with any money or any money bag um, or, um, or, or to take you know, a second tunic or even a pair of sandals, but just to depend upon on, um, you know, what people gave them to survive. And so Francis, also inspired by that passage in the gospel, took that seriously, and he went and sold all of his wealth, and he gave it to the poor, and he started off a life of itinerant preaching. Um, but unlike Waldo, Francis did not have a wife and children. So, you know, and that's not for nothing. When you're a single man, you're free to embrace a life of poverty in a way that you are not as a married man. Um, you have certain um, rights and obligations um, that you're, you owe your family in justice. Uh, I couldn't imagine if I told 
my wife today, you know, hun, I want to go and embrace a, a life of, of poverty and become a street preacher. And it's been great, but you know, I've sold the house. Um, I've set you up in a little apartment, so you'll be taken care of. Um, I've, I've arranged for all the kids to stay in convents, so you don't have to worry about them. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to go off now and just, you know, <laughs> just live a life of preaching, wandering the hills and spreading the gospel. You know, my wife would naturally have something to say, uh, <laughs> you know, about that. Uh, I'd be abandoning my, my marital duties, uh, you know, to her and, and to my family. Um, so there's a little bit of difference there, right, between Waldo and Francis in terms of their origins. But nevertheless, both of these men gave up their wealth in a really radical way, embraced poverty, and set off to, to preach the gospel. Um, and begging for, for what they needed and trusting in God for their survival. And both of these men would attract followers, right? Um, also, remember... The, the big heresy right now at this time is the Cathars, and as crazy as some of their beliefs are, one of the reasons why they're um, uh, attracting so many uh, members to their, their movement is because of their radical embracing of poverty, which was seen as a, a real foil to what people perceived as the worldliness of a lot of the members of the church at the time. So people like Waldo and people like Francis, who also embrace this radical poverty, they attracted a lot of followers. So Waldo's followers uh, became known as the Poor Men of Lyon. Um, they followed Waldo's example of dedicating themselves to a life of poverty and preaching in the streets of the towns that they would travel to. Um, like Waldo, a lot of them were married and left wives and children behind, unfortunately. Um, also, like Waldo, a lot of the men who followed him were uneducated. They didn't have any theological training. Um, and so when you have these, these men who um, have the zeal of someone who's experienced this conversion um, you know, experience, um, but don't have any theological education behind it, um, and they're going out into the streets and they're preaching what they understand the gospel to be, as you can imagine, you know, there might be some inconsistencies in their preaching. There might be some doctrinal errors in their preaching. They might um, be leading some people astray in what they're saying. And so the local bishop takes note of this, the Bishop of Lyon. And he prohibited them from preaching in public um, because, you know, he was concerned for the good of the church in Lyon, which he has charge over. So Waldo travels to Rome, and he, he seeks the permission of the Pope for his new group, um, and specifically for their um, permission to preach. Um, the Pope was Alexander III, and he did meet with Waldo at the Third Lateran Council in the year 1179. Uh, so this is you know two years before St. Francis was even born, just to put it in, in context. Um, the Pope praised Waldo's devotion to poverty, um, but he ordered him not to preach unless he had the permission of the local church authority, which, of course, he didn't have. The Bishop of Lyon would not grant permission because none of the poor men of Lyon had any kind of theological training. Um, and so he was just, he couldn't be guaranteed of the quality of their preaching. But Waldo's group continued to preach anyway, despite the lack of ecclesial approval. And they claimed that their obedience was due only to God and not to man. And that um, continued disobedience, disobedience to the church would lead to um, Waldo and his followers uh, being excommunicated in the year 1184. 
this excommunication was not just done as as a you know to be remedial to the uh, to the Waldensians themselves, as they would later come to be known, um, you know, as a, as a way of just making clear that they are separating themselves from the church by their disobedience, and what the church desires is their repentance and and to be brought back into communion with the church. But it's also done to protect the church in general because it needs to be made clear to people that when these men are out there preaching, they're not preaching on behalf of the church; they're not doing so with with church approval. Um, so. Um, so at this point, 1184, the Waldensians have formally been separated from the Catholic Church. And then once that happens, all kinds of other um, errors creep in to their teaching, right? Um, I mean, this is why they were not granted permission to preach to begin with, because lack of theological training um, put them at risk for having errors creep in. But then once they continue to persist in their preaching um, without any kind of ecclesial oversight whatsoever, you know, all these errors did um, just kind of come one after the other. One of the very first ones that they fell into was anti-clericalism, which is not hard to understand why. They had a resentment against the hierarchy of the Catholic Church that would not um, uh, allow them to preach, that would deny them their right to preach as they saw it. Um, and, uh, and so they would point to especially the more worldly or corrupt members of the Catholic hierarchy um, as... Um, you know, examples of the evils of the Catholic Church and then point to themselves and their very simple, austere lives of poverty that they would lead as a sign of their, their holiness and that they're actually living out, you know, the gospel message that Jesus calls for, this message of poverty, right? Um, they, uh, in addition to their vow of poverty, they also soon began to mandate a vow of celibacy. Um, again, part of their simple lifestyle. Um, if you are embracing a life of poverty, you cannot support a wife and children. So the men that would join their movement and, and become, you know, part of this poor men of Lyon, um, would be expected to also take a vow of poverty, um, with their wives permission, um, right, um, that they would, uh, they would come and, uh, or without their wives' permission. There was actually some disagreement that would develop uh, within the uh, Waldensian movement on that point. Do you need your wife's permission to take a vow of celibacy or not? Um, but nevertheless, that came to be expected. Um, now, the Waldensians, because they originated in southern France and they had the strongest following in southern France and in northern Italy, which is kind of the hotbed of the Cathar heresy, once they separated themselves from the Catholic Church, they started to adopt certain practices in common with the Cathars. Uh, for example, they divided themselves into perfects and hearers. The Waldensian perfects were the ones that actually took the vows of poverty and celibacy, whereas the Waldensian hearers were the ones who would come and they would hear the preaching and they would strive to live uh, lives of poverty, but they wouldn't actually take those vows yet. Uh, the hearers would remain part of the Catholic Church. They would receive the sacraments from the Catholic Church, except for confession. They wouldn't receive penance um, in the Catholic Church. They were expected to receive penance to make their confession only to a Waldensian perfect. Um, but over time, um, as their, their separation from the Catholic Church really solidified, the Waldensians actually set up their own um, uh, hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons. They established their own clergy, and they would celebrate their own sacraments. And so the hearers would, you know, be expected to come and receive their sacraments in the Waldensian Church, not the Catholic Church. And it's a little bit different than the way that the Catholic Church is structured. Um, for example, only their bishops could celebrate the Eucharist. Um, their bishops um, would preach, would hear confessions, would confer holy orders, um, and they would celebrate the Eucharist. 
priests could only preach and hear confession. Um, the priests wouldn't actually celebrate the Mass. Their Eucharist was um, uh, initially celebrated frequently, as we do in the Catholic Church, but eventually they would restrict the Eucharist so it was only celebrated on, uh, once a year on Holy Thursday um, in uh, commemoration of, of the Last Supper. Um, the um, in in northern Italy in Lombardy, they developed um, some uh, uh, some erroneous teachings about the sacraments. Generally, they started to teach that sacraments were only effective if the celebrant was worthy, um, and they they did this as part of their anti-clericalism against the Catholic Church because they viewed the Catholic Church as being entirely corrupt. Um, so they would you know, to, to encourage their members to come to the Waldensian Church to receive the sacraments, not the Catholic Church, they would say because the Catholic Church is corrupt, their sacraments were invalid. Um, and in doing this, they're actually revising and uh, reviving an old heresy from the, the fourth century that the Church had long ago dealt with called Donatism. Donatism, um, named after a, a, a bishop named Donatus, um, that heresy taught that um, you had to be worthy to celebrate the sacraments, that if a priest was, uh, or a bishop was uh, guilty of mortal sin, that he was unable to, uh, to celebrate the sacraments. And the church rejected that immediately, because if you, if you think about that, the consequence of that would be that we would never have any, um, uh, you know, any reason to believe any of our sacraments were valid. There'd be no assurance whatsoever, uh, let alone the fact, you know, you, you can't, just tell by looking at him whether the priest celebrating Mass is in a state of mortal sin or not. Um, but let's say he was in a state of mortal sin, but then he repented and wanted to go to confession. Well, what if the priest hearing his confession was in a state of mortal sin and couldn't you know, validly celebrate the sacrament of confession? Or what if the bishop who ordained that priest was in a state of mortal sin at the time of the ordination and therefore he couldn't actually ordain you know, men because he couldn't celebrate the sacrament of holy orders? I mean, it just keeps, it gets crazier and crazier when you think about it and you would have no, um, you know, no assurance at all that any sacrament celebrated anywhere was legitimate anymore. So the church rejected that and said, no, the sacraments are valid in and of themselves. They they work, you know, in through the rituals so long as there's valid matter, you have the valid words, you have a validly ordained minister. The worthiness of the minister, the, the holiness of the individual minister does not matter. Um, and that's of great assurance to, to Catholics that we actually know we have access to the sacramental graces because the graces come from God. The graces don't come from the you know, the individual minister that's celebrating it. Now, we all want our priests to be holy men, but if they're not, it doesn't, you know, invalidate the sacraments. It doesn't um, prevent us from receiving God's grace in those sacraments. So the Waldensians, at least in, in Lombardy in northern Italy, started to teach that, that yes, the efficacy of the sacraments is dependent on the worthiness of, of the celebrant. And of course, their Waldensian clergy were the worthy ones, right? <laughs> not, the, not the Catholic clergy. Um, the Waldensians relied heavily on vernacular translations of the Bible, um, which made sense because, again, they, they weren't coming from an educated class of people, and so they uh, couldn't read, for the most part, in Latin. And so um, they were dependent upon these translations of the scriptures, um, which is where they got most of their theological um, um, ideas from, again, having separated themselves from the Catholic Church. They weren't following church's tradition. They were kind of coming up with their own ideas. Um, 
And given the fact that vernacular translations of the Bible were rare and usually didn't exist as whole Bibles, but rather as individual books of the scripture, um, their actual exposure to scripture was fairly you know, limited. Um, and so this led them to deny um, lots of things if they couldn't find evidence for them in their reading of the scripture. So they denied purgatory, for example. Um, and uh, along with it, they also denied um, praying for the dead and the theology around indulgences because those things are dependent upon the doctrine of purgatory. Um, they said they couldn't find any um, foundation for them in the Bible, so they denied those things. Um, they also rejected the veneration of saints and the veneration of sacred images and the veneration of relics because they said that those things were uh, unbiblical. They weren't found in the scriptures. So a lot of these things, they, they're you can see certain resemblances between them and the, the Protestant movement that would come about later because the Protestants, you know, um, they also relied on the Bible as their sole rule of faith. Now, in Protestantism, which we'll talk about in a later episode, that developed into a formal teaching called Sola Scriptura, which is the scriptures alone are the sole authority for the faith. Um, in the Waldensian movement, it never formalized that as such, but uh, effectively that's what they practiced. They looked to um, the Bible as the source for their, their teachings, and anything that they couldn't find there, they, they denied. Um, it also led them to um, some erroneous teachings about you know, morality. Uh, so, for example, they taught that lying was a sin and that violence was a sin, which is true. Right. But they didn't allow any exceptions to that. Um, they became very fundamentalist in their interpretation of that. So they held that lying was always sinful and therefore always wrong, regardless of any circumstances. And likewise, violence was always sinful and always wrong, regardless of any circumstances. So unlike the Catholic Church, they didn't have what we would call the just war theory. Um, uh, they kind of laid out the conditions by which it may be justified and even necessary to engage in uh, physical conflict, conflict um, and violence um, for a just reason. For example, to defend innocent human life. Um, and then what are the concerns and the criteria that we need to keep in mind as we're engaging in this kind of justified violence? They didn't have that in the Waldensian view. Violence was just always wrong. Um, and uh, so they became pacifists, as it were. Um, they also forbid the taking of oaths because they believed that obedience was owed only to God, not to man. And so you could take a vow to God, like they took vows of poverty and vows of celibacy, but you could not make an oath to another human being. Um, and, and that, combined with their extreme pacifism, really put them at odds with medieval society as a whole. Because if you, again, think back in last week's episode, we talked about medieval society a little bit. It was a society of feudalism, um, which was a, a, a system of governance based on these personal oaths made between lords and vassals. So a vassal would swear an oath of allegiance to a lord, the vassal would owe that lord um, certain things in the form of, say, produce from the land or military service. Um, and then the lord would be responsible for providing oversight and governance and protection to, to the, the vassals under his care. And that whole thing was just propped up by a series of, of, of oaths, 
oaths of allegiance, um, and it was expected that people would honor those those oaths. That was the bedrock of medieval society. So the Waldensians said, "Well, you can't take these oaths, and you're, you're not holden to any oaths that you've taken to a human being because your obedience is due only to God." So that just you know, unravel the whole fabric of, of medieval society. I mean, that was the glue that held it together were these personal oaths. And then also a lot of what the vassals would owe the Lord in terms of obedience is military service. And the Waldensians said, no, you can't, you know, you can't provide military service because that's an act of violence and there's never any legitimate reason for, for performing an act of violence. Um, and then that denial of the recourse to violence also was very detrimental to um, kind of what we would call today, in today's terms, the criminal justice system in the Middle Ages, um, which was very violent. Um, it was a violent time in those respects. Um, today, if someone breaks the law, they might be punished by a fine, um, or if it's a serious offense, by a prison sentence. Well, they didn't have vast prison complexes like we do today. They didn't have the means of incarcerating people as we do today. So um, incarceration was typically very short, and um, it was just to, to hold someone until the actual punishment could be meted out. Uh, if you were accused and found guilty of a crime in the Middle Ages, the punishment you could expect would almost always be physical punishment, um, and uh, an execution was not uncommon. So by saying that you know execution was wrong and that physical violence in general was wrong, um, the Waldensians were basically taking away the ability of the secular rulers um, of medieval Europe to enforce their laws because they're, the way that they enforced their laws was by the threat of physical violence. That was the punishment that they had recourse to. Um, so the Waldensians were not making any friends, either among the Catholic Church or among the secular powers that be at the time. Um, and that led to a lot of problems for them, you know, down the road. Um, okay, so how did the church respond to this heretical, you know, movement? Um, well, initially, like I said, the church denied Waldo and his followers the um, the authority to preach, uh, but they weren't really a heretical movement at that time. They were just a movement within the church that was seeking church approval for, for doing what they wanted to do, to live this life of poverty and to go about the streets and preaching, um, and the church denied them that. Um, so then once they persisted, though, they became a, a heretical movement, um, especially once they set up their own you know, kind of um, shadow hierarchy, you know, in mimicry of the Catholic Church, their own hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons, and started to celebrate their own sacraments and really do their own thing. Um, and all these other heretical teachings crept in. What did the church respond to them, or how did the church respond to them then? What did the church do? Well, since the Waldensians um, were the most numerous in southern France and in northern Italy, which is exactly where the Cathars were most numerous, um, and since they resembled the Cathars in many ways, their, their lives of poverty, um, their uh, division uh, of themselves between, you know, perfects and hearers, they use a lot of the same Cathar terminology, um, the church really dealt with them in the same way and at the same time as they dealt with the Cathars. 
um, uh, St. Dominic and his preaching mission to the Cathars, they also preached to the Waldensians and converted Waldensians back into the church. Uh, the Albigensian crusade that was fought against the Cathars in, uh, in southern France um, also fought against the Waldensians um, yeah, there. Um, obviously, as extreme pacifists, the Waldensians didn't you know, respond in the same way. Um, but... But in many ways, though, there was an important difference between the, the Waldensians and the Cathars, even though they may have resembled each other in certain outward respects. Um, the Cathars just were not Christian. They simply were not Christian. This was an outside religion that was taking on certain Christian nomenclature um, and threatening the, the church. But the Waldensians, by contrast, these, these were Christians. This was a group that had its origin within the Catholic Church, that sadly split away from the Catholic Church, had become disobedient to the Catholic Church, and the Church really wanted them to come back. Um, and so as early as 1191, the Church was setting up formal meetings between leaders of the Catholic Church and leaders of the Waldensians. Um, we don't have any records of the proceedings of those early meetings, um, but in 1207, we, we do have uh, some historical information uh, of a meeting that happened in that year um, th that led to a group of Waldensians actually coming back into communion with the Catholic Church and reforming themselves under the name of the Poor Catholics. So they continued to embrace this charism of poverty, um, but they were doing so now with the approval of the Church, um, with a structure that was um, provided to them by the Church, and they would then go back out into Waldensian territory and they would preach um, uh, principally to the Waldensians to try and convert them back to the Catholic Church. Um, and they had a lot of success at that. Um, the problem with these preaching missions was that they're slow and they take time. And because of the way that some of the particular teachings of the Waldensians um, undercut the authority of the secular rulers of Europe, you had a lot of secular rulers that were not willing to wait for this kind of preaching effort to have effect. So, for example, you had in the year 1194, King Alfonso II of Aragon, he just wanted the Waldensians gone. He wanted them out of his kingdom. So he expelled them. He simply expelled them. And he forbade anyone from giving them food or shelter. Um, his successor, King Pedro II, um, a few years later in 1197, went one step further, and he he would burn any Waldensian that he found still in the kingdom. You know, he said, you've had three years to get out. If you're not still here, we're, we're burning you at the stake. Um, so um, a lot of the, the real harsh persecution of the Waldensians came at the hands of the, the secular rulers who saw them as a threat to the order of society. Um, so... Um, that the preaching missions of the church combined with these more more military effects um, like the Albigensian Crusade that we talked about last last week these more military efforts um, they effectively put an end to the Waldensian movement by the the middle of the 13th century um, the small pockets of Waldensians continued to survive but by the middle of the 13th century they were no longer seen as a threat um, either by the Catholic Church as a threat to the integrity of the faith or by the secular rulers of Europe as a threat to, to the fabric of society. Um, but they didn't disappear entirely. They continued to survive, um, and they, they still continue to survive today, although in name only, um, you, might, you might say. Um, 
there's uh, there are Waldensian groups that survived um, up to the Reformation, and then once the Reformation happened, they tended to just throw in with whatever reform movement was um, was in power in the region of Europe where they lived, and they became Protestant, even though they may have retained the Waldensian name, they retained Protestant in their doctrine. So, for example, the the largest group of surviving Waldensians is in northern Italy, um, but since the year 1655, they have followed uh, a Calvinist confession of faith, and, and they're essentially Reformed Protestants. Um, this is something that you'll note about the Waldensians, right? Their initial um, uh, uh, error was that of disobedience. They just didn't you know, they didn't obey the church authority. They wanted to preach. Church authorities said, no, you can't preach. You're not qualified. You might lead people astray. Um, and they said, well, we're going to preach anyway. And so they separated themselves from the church to, to do their own thing. Um, and then from that point forward, they they weren't following the shepherd of the Catholic church anymore. They tended to just follow any other shepherd that was available. So in France and in Northern Italy, where the Cathars were the most popular, you know, prominent anti-Catholic group, they started to look like the Cathars, right? They started to use the Cathar language. They started to uh, call themselves perfects and hearers and, and that sort of thing. Um, the surviving Waldensians in the, um, in the 15th century in Bohemia um, started to, um, to fall in with the Hussites. We'll learn about the Hussites in next week's episode. But, you know, they were another heretical movement, and the Waldensians just threw in with, with them. Um, the Waldensians that survived into the Reformation started to look like Calvinists, you know. Um, they started to follow John Calvin. Um, and then in, in later years, a lot of them would become Presbyterians, and they would become Methodists. Um, they, uh, even though these these groups um, they believed things as, you know, reformed Protestants that uh, the original Waldo um, and his followers wouldn't have believed. Um, you know, the one common bond was they're not Catholic. And so they, um, they fell in, um, you know, with them. Now, this allegiance of the, Waldens the surviving Waldensians with different Protestant groups has in the past led some to want to identify the Waldensians as as proto-Protestants, like early Protestants. Um, and in fact, some have even, um, in an attempt to kind of find an apostolic origin for their particular Protestant denomination, they've identified their denomination with the Waldensians and then identified the Waldensians with the apostolic church. Um, and they do this, there's, there's a myth that kind of crept up about the Waldensians um, that, that claims apostolic origin for their teachings. Um, and according to this myth, the, the church started to go bad um, under the reign of Constantine. And uh, the emperor Constantine, uh, it said, suffered from leprosy. And the Pope at that time, Pope Sylvester, cured him of leprosy. And in gratitude, the emperor um, gave the Pope a lot of wealth and a lot of land, a lot of influence. And that began the corruption of the Catholic Church. But there was a group of Christians in France, notice we're back in France, that supposedly was founded by St. Paul himself. And they remained uncorrupt. They remained pure. And they did so by hiding underground. And only you know, in the Middle Ages, would they resurface 
under the leadership of Peter Waldo. Notice now Waldo has a name, Peter. There's no evidence that he ever had that name or used that name during his lifetime, but as part of this legend, um, you know, they they attach the name Peter to him, you know, ostensibly to identify him with the leader of the apostles. So Peter Waldo, um, you know, became the leader of this underground, pure, you know, church um, that was started by St. Paul. Um, and then when the Reformation happened and the, the, the authority of the Catholic Church was weakened, you know, they kind of, you know, continue to live on in these Reformation churches. Now, no historian, no serious historian believes that this is true. There's no historical evidence for this at all, but that's the myth that kind of has grown up around the, the Waldensians. Um, I mentioned um, in last week's episode that um, I have this little book called The Trail of Blood. And in this little book called The Trail of Blood, um, it, it's an attempt to claim apostolic origins for the Baptist church by tracing it all the way back to John the Baptist. And the author is a Baptist minister in the 1930s, and he does this by identifying as proto-Baptists um, all the different historical um, heresies that the church has dealt with, a lot of which we're talking about in this series. And I mentioned it last week because he mentions the Cathars as one of these proto-Baptist groups, but he also claims the same thing for the Waldensians, um, that these were, you know, just underground Baptists by another name. Um, and like I said last week, no Baptist that I actually know believes this, um, but nevertheless, that was a claim that he was making. And the book was written in the 1930s, but the copy of it that I have is not a 1930s copy. I think it was done in the 1990s, so, you know, within the past 20 years, maybe, 20, 25 years. Um, and it's, I think, the 33rd edition of the book. So it's been constantly reprinted since it was written in the 1930s. And so, um, you know, it, it does have its influence, even though no historian actually agrees with its, with its claims. Um, so um, the real truth is that a lot of the surviving Waldensian groups today, um, they, they don't claim apostolic origin, uh, again, because that claim is not historically found, um, you know, founded. Uh, they claim their origin with Waldo in the 12th century. Um, but the odd thing is, if you look at their websites, even though they'll, they'll talk about that, in terms of what they actually believe their faith, um, they're all, you know, either Presbyterian or they're Methodist. Um, they don't actually say a lot about Waldo's actual faith itself, other than, you know, he was persecuted um, for his faith. So um, anyway, we'll, I'll talk more about that in, in just a little bit. Um, but uh, who are these surviving Waldensian groups? This is where it gets a little bit interesting, and I think, you know, kind of cool. Um, so they, they hung out in different corners in, in Europe. Um, they still managed to survive. Um, and there was a group in Sardinia that was granted, um, uh, you know, liberty, you know, permission to, to exist openly and publicly and to worship um, in the year 1848 by the king of Sardinia, Charles Albert. And from there, they were able to establish theological schools and actually send missionaries abroad. And that's why I mentioned that particular surviving Waldensian group, because from there, they established Waldensian colonies in, um, in South America, in Argentina, and in Uruguay. And then also three Waldensian colonies were established in North America, one in Wolf Ridge, Texas, one in Monette, Missouri, and one, the largest of them, 
in the town of Valdez, North Carolina, which is just a little ways down I-40 from us here in Cullowhee. Uh, in fact, the name of the town, Valdez, comes from, you know, Waldo um, or, or, or Val... Uh, Valdisius, I think, is, would be how that would be rendered in Latin. Um, so it's named after the Waldensians, the town of Valdez, North Carolina. Um, it was established in 1893, and it became the largest Waldensian colony outside of Italy. Um, so today, if you go there, um, there is a Waldensian church. It's called the Waldensian Presbyterian Church because they, they now belong to the Presbyterian denomination. Um, and they have a, uh, a Waldensian museum that the church maintains. And the town of Valdez itself has an annual Waldensian festival. Um, and you can go look on their website. It, it, I've never been, but according to their website, it looks like any other small town heritage festival that you've ever been to. They've got music, they've got food vendors, they've got crafts, they've got, um, looks like a, a foot race. I don't know if it's a 5k or, or what, um, but, you know, it just looks like a fun day. They they have it every year in August um, since 1976. So it uh, looks like this year they're advertising their 44th annual Waldensian Festival. Um, so I don't see much on their agenda, um, you know, about you know, the, the historic faith of the, of the Waldensians. Um, they do have, um, on Sunday, uh, though, it looks like what they're calling a, um, traditional Waldensian meal and church service. Um, just looking at their website here, it doesn't say much about their church service other than, um, it'll be at the Waldensian Presbyterian Church. Um, it says more about the meal. Uh, they're going to have Waldensian sausage, potatoes, Waldensian salad, cheese, grapes, bread, and a beverage. And you can get your tickets for $7.50. Um, anyway, um, there's also an American Waldensian Society. Um, there's not a Waldensian denomination, so to speak, anymore. You know, I've got um, a book that I use in my office that's called The Handbook of Denominations in the United States. Um, and there's no nothing listed under Waldensian, so it's not recognized as an official denomination because, as I said, all the existing Waldensian churches have kind of folded in with other Protestant churches, mostly either Presbyterian or or Methodist. Um, so there's there's not a lot on on these websites about the the actual faith or belief of the Waldensians because there's you know it's the Methodist faith or the Presbyterian faith. Um, there is a group called the American Waldensian Society though that seems like it exists primarily as an aid group to the historic Waldensian groups that are still over there in in Italy. Um, and they talk a little bit on their website about their history and. Um, but most of the history, it looks like, is focused on post-Reformation um, uh, events. In terms of their actual founding fathers, it says, The Waldensian Church originated with the preaching of the merchant Waldo of Lyon, um, from whom the church's name originates. He lived during the same period as St. Francis of Assisi. Like Francis, Waldo also believed in the value of the evangelical poverty of the early church, and after a profound spiritual crisis, gave all his assets to the poor in order to freely preach the gospel. The movement known as the Poor of Lyon in France um, continued to spread throughout Europe, but in a short time it was accused of heresy, and thereafter participants were repressed and persecuted by the civil and religious authorities. 
Despite very difficult times, the violence of the Inquisition of the Catholic Church, the movement continued to evangelize and succeeded in establishing an important community in the western Alps of the Piedmont, the south of France, Germany, and even in southern Italy. So it, um, and then it talks about how the Waldensian movement joined in with the Reformation in 1532 and, um, and so forth and so on, and um, just how they came to, to be identified with the Protestants. Um, so again, it, it, it looks at its origins and it draws these similarities between Waldo and St. Francis, but, you know, on the, at least on the website of the American Waldensian Society, they don't talk about what it is that Waldo actually preached, just that he preached. They don't say why the church condemned them of heresy, only that the church condemned them of heresy. There's a reason why the Waldensians were persecuted, but say the Franciscans were not, because there are a lot of parallels between what happened with Waldo and what happened with, with Francis. Um, they, they both um, felt called to a life of poverty. They both experienced a radical conversion in that regard. They both wanted to dedicate their lives not only entirely to poverty, but to preaching the gospel. Uh, and they both attracted other followers around them. The difference is one operated outside of the authority of the church, the other operated within the authority of the church. Um, St. Francis, um, I said, like I said, he was born in the year 1181, a little bit later than Waldo. Um, he founded his religious order in the year 1209. Um, so by then the Waldensians were already, you know, um, um, you know, in full swing. Um, he... Francis began preaching around the year 1207, but he went to Rome and he sought approval from Pope Innocent III in 1209 to form a new religious order. So he adapted, adopted a rule of life that would govern the way that he and his followers would operate. Um, that rule was subject to papal approval. Uh, and that rule was actually, you know, edited a little bit um, over the next few years. So the rule that the Franciscans follow today is not that original rule. It's It's been edited a little bit um, just to make sure that it doesn't go, you know, too far off the rails. Um, uh, specifically, the, the rule of extreme poverty um, has been relaxed a little bit um, because the church wants to avoid extremism in, in its religious orders. It wants to make sure that certain, you know, that, that reason is maintained um, and that... Uh, you don't end up making an idol out of something like, say, poverty, um, you know, by placing it above all other things. Um, and also, St. Francis needed the church's approval to, to preach and to teach. And so with the church's approval and the church's oversight, St. Francis actually went on to establish, you know, three religious orders. There's, you know, the, um, you know, there's the, the orders of Friars Minor, which is who we usually think of as Franciscans. But there's also the order of St. Clair or the Poor Clares. Um, that is, uh, you know, the second order Franciscans. And then there's a third order Franciscans, you know, um, as well. Um, and they're still around today doing wonderful things within the church. Um, and these, the Franciscan movement has given rise to uh, a number of saints, not just St. Francis and not just St. Clair, but St. Bonaventure, St. Anthony of Padua, uh, St. Junipero Serra, um, you know, the great missionary to the United States, um, St. Padre Pio, uh, St. Maximilian Colby, um, Blessed Don Scotus, Blessed Solanus Casey, um, whose canonization cause is, is still open right now. I mean, there's beautiful, beautiful saints that have come out of the Franciscan order. Um, 
So it's just kind of the Franciscans provide kind of a, a foil for the Waldensians. It's like this is what the Waldensians could have been had they been loyal to the church. You know, so when, you know, when the church said, no, you can't preach, if Waldo had said, you know, okay, your holiness, well, what can we do to where we would be allowed to preach? What steps are necessary? Guide us, lead us, rather than, you know what, I'm going to go and do my own thing. I'm going to go obey God and preach, not obey you. You're just a man. It's this lack of obedience. All religious orders, all legitimate religious orders, take vows of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. The Waldensians took vows of poverty and vows of celibacy. They lacked that vow of obedience. Um, but you can't have a successful religious movement without all three of those things. Um, there's a reason why it's, it's there. <laughs> obedience is a necessary virtue. Um, it's a virtue that Christ himself embraced. You know, Christ was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's a key virtue. Um, otherwise, I mean, we're all obedient to somebody, right? We can say that we're not obedient to the church, and all that it means is we're obedient to ourselves. Um, and we're really good about fooling ourselves into thinking that whatever we want for ourselves is what God wants for us. It sounds well and good to say my obedience is only to God, not to man. But what that means is that I've now elevated myself to be the final arbiter of what God's will for me is. So if I say I'm only following God's will, not man's will, you know, and, and I'm dependent upon myself to identify what God's will is, how do I know I'm not just doing what I want rather than what God wants for me? There's a reason why God puts certain people in authority over us, and it's a virtue for us to obey that authority, if it's right authority, if it's legitimate authority. As Catholics, we believe that God has given certain authority to the church, and that the church exercises that authority to teach, to govern, and to sanctify us. Um, and God's not going to call you to do something that's going to require you to disobey the legitimate authority of the church, even if you think that you know better. Um, for Waldo, it was the, this idea that he wanted to go and preach. But you know what? If you want to get up there and preach at Mass, you can't do that. You have to have the authority of the church. So the church doesn't allow just anyone to get up and teach in its name, uh, and rightly so. Um, but today, um, where we run into this problem most often is in moral issues, right? We all want to obey our own authority when it comes to certain moral issues. Uh, say a you know, boyfriend and girlfriend, they want to live together before they get married, and they know the church says you can't do that. Well, what does the church know, right? We, we know what's best for us. We're going to go ahead and do this. Um, a husband and wife want to use contraception in their marriage. Church says, no, contraception is a grave moral evil. Well, I know what's you know, better for me in my marriage than the church does, so I'm going to go ahead and use contraception. We, we feel free to disobey the church on all of these matters, Really what we're, own, what we're doing is we're putting our own will and our own authority above that of the church and making, making gods of ourselves, in essence. Um, what we see in the Waldensian heresy is kind of the, the long-term effect of that played out um, when you have a whole movement that is doing what it thinks is God's will, but it's doing it outside of communion with God's church. Okay, 
And then we also have, as I said, the counter to that, that beautiful example given to us by St. Francis in the Franciscan um, uh, movement uh, that gives us a, a wonderful um, example of what um, that same um, charism of poverty and preaching can look like when it's allowed to develop within the bosom of Mother Church by adding that third evangelical council of obedience to the vows of poverty and, and celibacy that the Waldensians also took. So that's it for, um, for our episode on the Waldensians, and I'll, I'll put some links on our website to um, some of these uh, um, modern-day Waldensian websites. I'll put a link to the Town of Valdez, North Carolina's uh, annual Waldensian festival, as well as to the Waldensian uh, Presbyterian Church that still exists there. You can look them up, and the American Waldensian Society. Um, I'll also put some information up there about St. Francis and the Franciscan Orders, just so you can kind of see, you know, the uh, kind of the other side of that, and uh, and what St. Francis was able to achieve uh, by embracing that radical call to poverty, um, but by doing so in obedience to the church. So next week, we'll take a look at a couple of other um, late medieval um, um, figures that um, uh, would kind of lay the groundwork for the Protestant Reformation that would eventually come, um, Wycliffe and Huss. So we'll be going into the, the 14th century and, uh, and beyond. So tune in next week. Until then, have, uh, have a blessed week. God bless.